You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Revelation chapter 6 is one of the most ominous chapters in all of God's Word. I think it's helpful to us in our overall understanding of the gospel. Uh, simply because I, I think at times as we preach the gospel, as we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, as we hear the wonderful reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I think at times as we preach that gospel message, there may be moments that we forget of the horrible and awful, in the sense of inspiring awe, wrath of God, that there is such a thing. In fact, in John chapter 3, when Jesus actually declared that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, he went on to say, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, but then he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, John writes. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true and comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so the book of Revelation chapter 6 provides us with an opportunity to really see the wrath of God, that the world is saved through the gospel, that those who would believe in the gift of the Son of God would not perish but have everlasting Life. Now, the book of Revelation, as I've shared with you time and time again, is the only book of the Bible that comes with its own divine outline. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus tells John to write the things that you have seen. That's chapter 1. The things that are, that's chapter 2 and 3. And those that are about to take place after this, or those that are to take place after this, and that's chapter 4 and beyond, because in chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, after this, I looked and heard a voice from heaven saying, come up here, I will show you what must take place after this, and so the after this is chapter 4 and beyond. So as I've shared with you before, I'm following a very simple outline as we look through the book of Revelation a futuristic, literal interpretation of the book. The chapter 1 are the things that were that John had seen. Chapter 2 and 3 were letters written to the seven churches in existence at the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. And that chapter 4 and 5 were was an image or a vision of the throne room of God. And that chapter 6 through uh, 18 and 19 are the is the great tribulation followed by the physical second coming of Christ 
And then you have the millennial reign of Christ near the end of the book and the new heavens and the new earth revealed to us in the final two chapters of the book of Revelation. So a very simple flow uh, in the book. And so here in chapter 6, we're entering into a, uh, a wonderful portion of God's word. And I believe that this new section that we're going into, beginning with chapter 6, is none other than the 70th week of Daniel. Now, some of you may wonder what that is. I'd encourage you to go to our study in the book of Daniel. But it says in Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. He had been in captivity in Babylon, uh, working for the political leaders there, the kings and those in authority. God had raised him up and God had put a spirit of wisdom and understanding inside of Daniel. And he began reading the prophecies of Jeremiah the prophet. And he began to realize from the prophecies of Jeremiah that the people of Israel would be uh, taken away captive or uh, of Judah would be taken away captive for a period of 70 years so that the land could receive its Sabbath rests. You see, God had told the people to allow the land to rest every seven years, and they had ignored God's command for 490 years. So that was 70 years of Sabbath that the land had not received. And so God banished the people from uh, Judah, from Israel, and was giving the land a Sabbath rest. And Daniel began reading that and realizing, hey, we're getting near the end of this 70-year period of rest. And he began to cry out to God and he began to repent of sin as sort of a figurehead for the nation, asking God to allow them to return to Israel. And as he was crying out to God, Gabriel the angel came to him and presented him with insight. He says, Oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And this is what the angel Gabriel said to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Believe me, I know that we're studying Revelation chapter 6 today. I will get to it, but I want you to, to hear this. He says in Daniel 9, verse 24, he says, Daniel, 70 weeks, and that word weeks just literally means sevens. So 70 sevens. So that totals 490. 70 sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So he says there is a 490-year period of time that is going to do all of that, end sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecies, and to anoint the holy place. Know therefore, he says in verse 25, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, when you hear 
God's word refer to an anointed one and a prince, uh, it seems as if there is the indication of the Messiah, whom Jesus is, the anointed one. The, the disciples would say, we have found the Messiah. We have found the anointed one. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, so the seven sevens plus 62 sevens, that's 69 sevens, which would equal 483 years, he says, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one seven or one week, one final seven-year period. And for half of that week, three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolation. Now, briefly and quickly, all I really want to point out here is that there, Daniel receives a prophecy concerning 490 uh, years and the prophecy says that from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one or the Messiah, the Messiah, the prince, there will be 483 years. And I believe if, as you read Nehemiah chapter 2 and King Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem, he gives him a written decree and command to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. This is not the command that was given from Cyrus to rebuild the temple. It's very specific, a command to rebuild the city. I believe that 483 years later, uh, to the exact moment, is when Jesus Christ was revealed riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey being proclaimed as the Messiah. And so what that tells us is that there is one final seven-year period remaining. And it will be the people of the prince who is to come who would destroy Jerusalem. That would be, of course, the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so it seems as if there will be a, a leader and a ruler who comes in the future with some kind of ancestral tie to that Roman government, a revived Roman government, if you will, who will establish a peace treaty with the world for seven years, but at the three and a half year mark of it will defile the temple and uh, all hell literally will break loose. And I believe we're beginning to see that kind of thing as we turn to Revelation chapter six. And so what is the purpose for God in these seven years? I believe the purpose of God is to shake man from his sense of self-security. I believe that many people will give their lives to Christ during these seven years. I don't believe that the church will be present in its current state. I believe that we will be called home. Those who are alive at the beginning of this time, I believe we will be called home in the rapture of the church. The church is mentioned many times uh, up to this point in the book of Revelation, but we will not see the church after this. He says in verse 1, of Revelation chapter 6. We're just going to move through this. He says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. 
And so John is watching, he's observing. And I think what we're about to see, I told you at the very beginning of this, we're going to study this from a futuristic, literal uh, sense, uh, that these are chronological events. But I also told you that as we look at these things, we will interpret them literally when obvious. And we will then take images and interpret them as imagery when that is obvious. And I think that's one thing that is obvious here in chapter 6. He says, I, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. You remember that seven-sealed scroll from chapter 5. And I believe that's the title deed of the earth. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. And so the first seal is loosed on this seven-sealed scroll. Okay, so the first seal is loosed, and this is important because Jesus is going to loose the seals one by one. And when we get to the seventh seal, the seventh seal will contain seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet will contain seven bulls of judgment. And so really what we're doing is we're opening up and seeing the six first seals quickly so that we can get to that seventh seal that is so full of the wrath of God and so full of difficulty on planet earth. And the first seal, there's a white horse rider who's carrying a bow. No arrows, but he's carrying a bow and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, because this is a white horse rider, many have concluded that this must be Jesus. And it's true. Uh, Jesus will return riding on a white horse. We're going to study that in Revelation chapter 19. We'll see the return of Christ riding on a white horse. And we as his saints will be with him. It will be a glorious and wonderful moment. Uh, however, the white horse in scripture doesn't automatically indicate Jesus. The white horse throughout scripture is a symbol of of authority. Even in those days, the Roman conquerors would uh, ride upon the white horse. It was speaking of authority and conquering and power and might. And the horsemen that follow this white horseman are not at all uh, in step with the ministry and the work of Jesus. And so I don't believe that this is Jesus riding on the white horse. I believe that Jesus is uh, busy opening the seals, I believe that this is an imposter of Christ, uh, namely the Antichrist. Uh, he's referred to in Daniel 9 as the prince who is to come, as the one who will make a covenant with many for one week, the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the son of perdition. He will claim to be God, 2 Thessalonians 2, in the temple, I believe, at the three and a half year mark of a seven year period. He will, through that demand, usher in what is called the abomination of desolation, Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, and Jesus' prophecy in Mark chapter 13. And so I believe this to be the Antichrist, and we will see him later as we move through the book of Revelation. Notice that he's carrying a bow, no arrows. He uh, has no real authority. 
uh, but he comes out conquering and to conquer. He establishes treaties and, and he does. He conquers and spreads his power. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, this being Jesus, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out, of, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So now again, I don't, I don't imagine that at this point on earth, people are going to see a white horse rider come. I don't, I don't imagine that they're going to see a red horse rider come, these four uh, apocalyptic horsemen. Perhaps they will, but I think what John is seeing from his vantage point and from his vision with this red horse rider is that peace is removed from the earth and he has a, a great sword and people are slaying one another. In other words, I believe that there is going to be a large military action during this time. There will be worldwide violence during this period. And uh, it is worth noting that every weapon that has ever been developed by mankind has eventually been used. And when you think of the modern world that we live in, that's an incredible, incredibly scary thought. The world seems primed and ready for this kind of combustion where there is another worldwide war. When he opened the third seal, verse 5, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so this is very typical. After large-scale war, many times poverty will follow. And that seems to be what comes with this black horse rider. Uh, for a denarius, which would be a day's wage at that time, the time of John, someone could buy enough wheat for one meal or enough barley for three meals. Uh, but there wouldn't be anything for them to be able to purchase the oil and the wine. They'd only be able to have wheat and barley. But notice he says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. That may be an indication that the wealthy during this time, those who would consume the oil and have the oil and the wine, that, that may be an indication that they might still be fine during this economic collapse and this time of worldwide financial trouble. And so death and the black horse and, and uh, the economic collapse and all of that begins to tumble here with the black horse rider. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a pale horse. This would be a pale green. And its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And so you see here quickly, and I think it's important to note that here you have the first four seals of this scroll opened rather rapidly from John's perspective. Now they may 
take some time. They may take three, four years to actually unravel. But from John's perspective, as horrible as these four writers are, the events of the seventh seal are the most horrible. And what you see in these first four seals and these four horsemen, as you see this worldwide leader, the Antichrist, the man of sin, you see him rising to power, consolidating power. You see military might and strength and, and worldwide war. You see the economy crushed worldwide, and you see that people begin to die at a rapid rate. It tells us that a fourth of the earth will die during this time. And so it's just chaos on planet earth. And to me at least, this isn't difficult to imagine this kind of scenario, this kind of reality. A worldwide leader that everybody begins to pledge allegiance to. He consolidates his military power. Those who resist him are fought against. The economy begins to tumble and be hurt rapidly and death begins to follow upon the earth. It seems like something that would be absolutely possible uh, in the volatile world that we live in. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So now John goes back to the heavenly scene. The first four seals dealt with the earth, but the fifth seal deals with heaven. And he sees the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of their witness. You know, persecution has been happening to the church from the very beginning. We're a movement that is founded in persecution. We're a movement that prospered in persecution. And he sees these people who have died for their faith. And they cried out with a loud voice, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so their question is, when are you going to avenge our deaths? When are you going to avenge our blood? How long until you do this? And I think that this type of question has been a real head scratcher for God's people, really from the very beginning. The psalmist who said that the prosperity of the wicked was baffling his heart. You know, but it wasn't until he understood their end in Psalm 73 that his heart was calmed. These martyrs knew that an end was coming and they trusted that Jesus, they trusted that the Lord was going to avenge them for their wrongful deaths. And so they entrusted themselves into his hands. I think if we were able to capture the reality of the end from the beginning, having a vision for the end from the beginning, I think we would do well. Then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There would be more martyrs. And I believe that 
during this time of tribulation and difficulty, there will be many people who give their lives to the Lord who become martyrs. They die during this season. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So this is catastrophic, cataclysmic, earth-moving, sky-darkening stuff that is happening during this sixth seal. Now, Joel had prophesied this exact kind of event. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted from the book of Joel. And so I believe that we see a fulfillment of that prophecy here. A great earthquake, the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood, stars falling from the sky, you know, uh, hitting the earth, meteors and all of that, uh, and the sky growing dark, the sky vanishing like a scroll, whether that's, you know, advanced warfare and, and weaponry, you know, uh, just this horrible moment where the world is just struck. And the kings of the earth, verse 15, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This is an absolutely worldwide event. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand it's interesting rather than repent they hide themselves i believe there again there will be many who come to christ but these kings and great ones and rich and generals and powerful uh, they hide themselves among the rocks and they call out to the mountains and rocks to fall on them and to hide them and to give them cover from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. And the great day of their wrath has come. And he closes this chapter by saying, and this seal by saying, who can stand? There is such a thing as the wrath of God and there is such a thing as the wrath of the Lamb. I believe the Bible teaches clearly that the church is exempt from such wrath. Romans chapter 5 verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Ephesians 5 verse 6, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And Genesis 18, of course, when Abraham was negotiating, so to speak, with God over Lot's life in the city of Sodom, he said, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And so who can stand is the question that is asked at the end of Revelation 6. 
And that's the thrust of the whole passage, to get to the point where we would say, who can stand in God's presence? Who can stand in the face of his all-consuming fire? Who can stand? And the answer of that question, of course, is those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who have believed in him, those who have trusted in him, those who have received the Son that God has provided will be able to stand in the day of his wrath and will be able to live in his presence. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.